Jane Hirschfeld says poetry is the intensification and magnification of being. Um, I think that that's pretty close to it. I it just makes my life feel more meaningful, imbued with uh, with uh, kind of a jouissance, if you will. It just gives it some shape, right? I, I it gives it a kind of existential shape. You know, um, I mean, obviously every day has shape. I get up at 7.30, I drink my tea, I eat my yogurt. That's a shape, right? Those are iron rails in a way. But poetry gets to the um, to the deeper realms of being, of un- the unknown, of the mysterious, of the past. I, all these sort of tendrils uh, are kind of tether that you don't maybe normally have access to. I, I'm totally winging That's, it, dude. It's so beautiful. Tell be, me. T- I would feel very differently What is later. jouissance? I, I see this word, but I never know what it means. <laughs> but but I know it's a very important concept. Enlighten me. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's pleasure. Um, and in particular, it's a sort of a mm, sexual okay. thrill, I think. So maybe that's not exactly the term. I sort of have misappropriated it as just a kind of giddiness. A giddiness. But I think if you ask the pros, it, it probably has a little more of an erotic charge. Sure. Okay. Um, so we have a sense of your kind of big picture spiritual connection to poetry. What about like, how'd you, how'd you, how'd you get into it? What's your kind of origin story? Well, um, I think it's probably fairly conventional. I, you know, I listened to a lot of like Pink Floyd in high school and, uh, I kind of did that usual sort of reverberation between manic giddiness and complete, you know, self-annihilating despair. And, uh, and so I, you know, listen to these Pink Floyd lyrics and the Smiths and so on and hear all these kind of depressing phrases. And I was like, I, I also am depressed. Perhaps I can also pen some depressing phrases. And so, you know, I wrote the kind of classic, um, tortured, teenage stuff Mm -hmm. that was not at all informed by reading contemporary poetry because we weren't taught contemporary poetry. And I knew no one who read contemporary poetry, right? Like pop lyrics were as close as it got, or maybe, you know, was Edgar Allan Poe contemporary? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) so it would be, it'd be like black. I want my coffee black, black, like the grave. I mean, really, really great quality, high quality stuff. And, um, you know, but it did create a little bit of a frisson, which is a shiver, right, mm. of, of something that I didn't get in my normal conversation, in my normal dreaming, in my normal life. So, you know, there was a little power source there. Like, it wasn't fully online, but there was something there I wasn't getting in any other part of my life. And maybe that's that's where it all sort of uh, what drives it. Um, and then, uh, 
in college and then I kind of quit writing. And then in college, uh, we were reading, uh, T.S. Eliot in a lit class, love song of G. Alfred Prufrock. And, and I just thought this is so badass the way it's got, oh, are you still there, dude? Oh yeah. Okay, cool, man. It's, uh, the way it's got all these associative leaps, the, the rhythm, the rhyme, the cultural touchstones, the personal touchstones, the moments of confession that are masked in, um, all these layerings of history and myth. I just thought this is insane. You know, I, I, I cannot, I couldn't read it enough times. Um, and then I, you know, ripped it off. I was like, all right, I want to write a poem like that. And so I wrote the Ralston version of uh, <laughs> Jail from Proof Rock. What's Ralston, Todd? <laughs> Ralston is a little suburb, a little sort of lower middle class suburb of Omaha where I went to high school um, with all the uh, electricians' apprentices and plumbers' apprentices and so on. Great place, man. But, um, so, you know, my version was like, instead of hanging out in England with the, with the uh, elite, it was me and the hoi polloi in the trucks, like taking pink heart pills and, uh, you know, beer bongs and locker cleaner inhalants and, you know, things like that. So that sounds pretty badass to me. Um, <laughs> you ever done whippets, Todd? Oh God. So many times, man. <laughs> Aren't whippets just great. Aren't they just like the most thrilling experience? Yeah, man. I mean, that is like one of the original life hacks, man. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's true. That's true. Um, okay. That's beautiful shit, Todd. Do you still listen to Pink Floyd? Uh, you know, it's been a little bit, I actually, wait, I take that back, you know? So I thought I hadn't, but I just have been listening to like a saucer full of secrets. It's like their second album. Mm, And, um, yeah, yeah. Barrett is, I'm not a giant Sid Barrett fan. You'd think I would be because of the acid shit, but, um, you know, so there's a couple songs on there, like set your controls for the heart of the sun, which I think is a masterpiece of, uh, of psychedelic rock that to me feels new. Over the mountain, watching the watcher. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a dinosaur, man. I'm a triceratops, but, uh, I think that song could have been made yesterday and people would say, wow, this is, this is unbelievably cool. Yeah. I think Pink Floyd's honestly one of the great bands. I was a fan in high school as well. And then I sort of drifted away, but in recent years I've returned to the group and, uh, obviously their music kicks total ass. Like there's really no denying their music I feel, but also they're kind of like, 
social vision it's just very compelling to me i i I find it to i just jive with it it's just like the way that pink floyd talks about how the world is and how the world should be It just strikes me as true in a way that a lot of musicians just never kind of reach that level. Well said, man. Yeah, I mean, they're they're taking the microscope to our political institutions, to our domestic arrangements, to our little dreams and failings. And uh, yeah, and, and it's all meshed in this amazingly cool ambient groove that feels like it was made by... Uh, neanderthals on mushrooms you know in a ufo (laughs) so (laughs) a true fucking groove neanderthals on mushrooms in a ufo um todd let me ask you this question about your life as a poet i uh i've 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 known of you as a poet for quite some time i believe over a decade now um i used to go to the readings at uno and I would sort of uh, just be a, a lurker in the background, just kind of taking in the proceedings. And I remember that you had this poem that was like you spoke in Klingon, the the language of Star Trek at some point. Is this is this an accurate re- recollection? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was sort of like a a crowd pleaser, kind of like a like a hit. And it was like a funny poem. But I always wondered, like, who the fuck is this guy with this, like, weird-ass Klingon poem? And then as I sort of got to know you, uh, your readings over the years, they took on a more kind of intense and personal dimension of, uh, you know, really going into some deep-ass shit. Do you feel like you had some kind of uh, change as a poet at any point uh, where you got more tapped into stuff or... Am I just kind of misreading the situation and 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 projecting onto my own sort of feeble insecurities? <laughs> Take that back, redact that, man. No, you are spot on, and I mean you're the surgeon, dude. Uh, you're getting right to the quick. Um, I think that's fair. I think it was a lot goofier back in the day, um, and crowd pleasing was probably the goal. Um, I think I kind of had a personal turning point. Uh, I had several personal turning points. Um, 
in 2014 where, you know, I kind of had a lot of disruptions. I kind of fell in love and I wrote all these love poems and, and, uh, and then that sort of blew up and some other shit blew up. And then I got sober and, um, after years of, you know, kind of, kind of lifestyle drinking and drug use, you know, it was not like I'm going to end up in jail, but you know, it's like, I'm not going to get through a day without it. That's for sure. Um, anyway, so, you know, I mean, I've called it before a garden variety midlife crisis. I mean, it really was like this year of these system shocks and, um, poetical effusions of yearning of regret of, um, trying to make sense of, you know, spurning my old life, many aspects of it. And yeah, so I think I probably haven't really changed the last five, six years. It's been this constant sort of sifting through the wreckage, sifting through, looking at my motives, trying to look at my motives and my behaviors, honestly, um, you know, without too much judgment, without too much shame, but also, you know, being frank. And, and, and I think that comes mm. from, I mean, I've always loved confessional poetry. I'm kind of a sucker for it, but um, I think it also comes from kind of recovery culture, which really praises honesty. And I, I don't know that I should be conflating poetry and recovery culture. I mean, but somehow, right. We conflate all of our things, right? I mean, whatever you, music you listen well, to is is, is going to show up in your poems and whoever you make love to is going to show up in your poems mm -hmm. and what politics you have. So why wouldn't I be writing from the ethos of recovery culture in a poem? I mean, so honesty is it, dude. It's like, let's lay it on the line. You know, let's be frank about our failings and our pettiness and uh, our just self lacerating, you know, nonsense. Um, even as we celebrate the beauty of the world and of love and so on. So, because, right. I mean, you can't have one without the other. It's, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's a truism. It's fucking undeniable wall of reality that we all trapes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, just, just to put my cards on the table, but part of the, uh the purpose of this project is to, you know, talk about poetry and talk about, sobriety because those are both important things in my life as well and uh while they are sort of separate things uh poetry isn't necessarily part of sobriety but for me it is you know what i mean it is all connected in a very real way so i don't know i, I appreciate you making that connection um let me let me let me let me go further into the so sobriety direction since you brought it up like Again, sort of like as a as a lurking fly on the wall, uh, Todd Robinson to me sort of struck me as like here's a guy who can party, can have a good time, can uh, get high, can have people over, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and he's kind of got it all figured out. Like in my mind, I was like, I wish I could be more like Todd. Like I wish I could get fucked up and be this sort of. Uh, fun motherfucker or whatever but i unfortunately am this like dark pit of despair or something like that yet you know um despite my perception of you as sort of like a happy-go-lucky party dude um you nonetheless turn to sobriety like again like what's what's the gap between how i saw things and, and the reality because obviously it wasn't sustainable for you yeah well said baby um 
You know, I mean, I think, I mean, this in a way goes back to Elliot, you know, he said you in that, in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, you know, prepare a face for the faces that you meet. And so what I wanted people to see was I'm a happy go lucky dude, man. I smoke a little pot, do a little shrooms. I drink, I have a good time. I love everybody. You know, um, uh, you too can live like I do. Well, let's all do this. It'll be great. And I'm not to say I was inauthentic because I do take energy from people like, dude, the second I started talking to you today this is the best I've felt in, in about a week, man. I felt like alive again, happy again, grateful. And, um, but that's not all, all that I am. And so, and in particular, when I was drinking and using, you know, it, when I saw you, in the city at a reading or friends or at a bar or wherever I was, I was happy and having a good time, but that wasn't the problem for me. Uh, the problem was hanging out at home and smoking weed at eight in the morning and, you know, drinking scotch till four. And, uh, if I ever had any drugs, like they couldn't just be in my house in the stash box, man. I mean, you, you know, they had to be indulged until they were gone. And then we had to get some more. So it was a lot of solo usage. You know, that was really the danger. Mm -hmm. It was 90% me alone, not drinking. I, I really not, never got into drinking alone too much, maybe toward the end, but, but certainly doing drugs alone. And, and I had, you know, pretty profound health problems related to that, which you're not going to put on Facebook. At least I'm not. Um, so I had, uh, you know, how, how raw do you want this to be, dude? A petroleum boogie. You know, you know, I mean, petroleum is a raw material that we then turn into uh, gasoline to power our whole world. Uh, so, you know, as raw or as refined as you wish, because that is the way of petroleum. I, I don't want you to feel like you have to have to bury your soul or anything in a way that makes you uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, this this stuff is interesting to me. And I think that a lot of people, even people who aren't necessarily trying to be sober, I, I think the perspectives, the ideas, the thoughts of sobriety culture are very like valuable. And I think that, um, you know, people, I, I know that in my experience, just the kind of smatterings of like, Oh, this person has this sort of idea about not drinking or whatever, just the little things I could pick up ultimately were kind of transformative in my life. Um, but they were just kind of random and just sort of scattered about. I feel like sobriety ideas, they're sort of hidden away. They're uh, put in a dark corner. And if you're not in that world, it's sort of hard for you to access those ideas. So that, that's part of the impulse is just like, you know, bringing some light into this world that uh, is a little bit, it's kind of like a secret society almost, you know? Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, well, so in short, um, Probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little more. Um, I started to have difficulty swallowing certain foods like bread or starches or whatever um, because I had drank so regularly and smoked so much pot and ate, you know, I'd eat like a, I'd eat like a half gallon of ice cream at one in the morning and then go to bed, which caused all sorts of fucked up shit with my, with my gut and so on. And um, so I mean, I just, I just fried my esophagus. It was narrowed. It was full of scar tissue. And so I started choking like a lot. And, um, you know, this, this is what's so important about sobriety, because when you're 
I mean, you knew me, dude. And you're like, this is a guy who writes these goofy Klingon poems. And I was teaching and I think I was working hard as a teacher and I was, I was nurturing people and I was doing shit in the city. I mean, I was, I was productive in a lot of ways and happy in a lot of ways, but I was also this kind of Jekyll and Hyde addict who's built a life around Mm -hmm. deception um, of deception of self and other. Right. So anyway, I was choking like a lot and it was really scary. You know, like I would eat like a, I don't know, dude, like a vegan meatball or something. And, and uh, like a Molly like a Indian dumpling. And it would not go. I couldn't swallow it for like three hours, dude. It would just be stuck. Like I could breathe, but I couldn't swallow like my own spit, anything at all. Um, and, and so my main concern, obviously I was like scared, like what is wrong with my body? But my main fear was if I tell this to anyone, especially my wife, you know, she's going to want me to get it looked at and they're going to say, you can't be drinking and smoking pot. (laughs) I was like, that's, that's inconceivable. (laughs) So, so I'm not kidding, brother, for, for several years, I hid these symptoms. And so, you know, I'd be out with pals and I'd start choking on something and I'd just scoot over to the bathroom and, you know, we'd try to get it up and out or swallow it somehow. And I would be in there until it was gone. And then I'd come out and just resume the self-destruction. So that is, that's the real gritty truth. Um, and then finally one time, you know, we were in Canada or something and, uh, and I was choking at this restaurant and there was nowhere to hide. And my wife's like, what is going on? Cheryl, I'm gonna quit saying my wife. It sounds so fucking old man. Cheryl was like, my partner was like, what is up? And I'm like, uh, I can't swallow. And she's like, what, why? And I'm like, uh, I, okay, I'm going to come clean. So anyway, I ended up going to a doctor and I had to have my, uh, esophagus surgically dilated dude this is what a sick weirdo i am i mean i had to have it surgically dilated he had to knock me out put a tube down my throat and stretch my esophagus and you know he was not somebody who said well you know i lied to him he's like why are you not swallowing what are your habits do you drink a lot and i go no man i just have like a cigar once in a while because once again i wasn't ready to get sober I didn't drink for 40 days didn't smoke weed and then finally i was like i can't take it i got it i gotta have my medicine and I continued for a couple more years and it started coming back and uh, that still wasn't stopping me until my heart kind of went south. This was about, uh, this was uh, September of 2014 and we we're at a restaurant and, and uh, my heart just started quivering like a fish and that had happened before, but it would come and go. And so I thought maybe I had a heart murmur, but this time it came and stayed. And uh, I was like, I don't want to tell my wife because she's going to want to stop me from smoking weed. <laughs> I mean, this is the craziness. Like, again, we walk among you. We seem like fairly normal, fairly happy, fairly well-adjusted people. But inside, man, it is a fucking labyrinth. And it's full of thorns and pools of venom and just so much madness. So anyway, I ended up going to the ER and uh, I didn't tell them what I'd been doing. Because once again, I wasn't ready to get sober, but you know, a night or two later, three in the morning at UNMC. And it's like, okay, dude, like this body just cannot keep absorbing these torpedoes. Like I can't do this anymore. So 
I got out of the hospital and uh, went to AA and I've been sober for s- almost six years, brother, except I did a couple whippets in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, man. Me too. <laughs> you did? Like literally I did whippets in 2018. <laughs> um, we got to talk more often, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I've always had kind of a, a freewheeling definition of sobriety and to me, uh, doing these whippets didn't didn't break my sobriety. But uh, you know, the more kind of hardline definitions, uh, as I've gotten older and more deep into sobriety, the the wisdom of it makes a lot of sense. Because uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is the only reason I did whippets is because I was at a friend's bachelor party and this dude showed up with a fuckload of whippets. Uh, and I'm just not going to be in a whippet doing situation probably ever again. So there's no real danger of me like getting deep into whippets. But um, at the same time, it is a bit of a departure from what I was committed to. Um, I don't know. A lot of what you said resonated with me, man, because like the whole aspect of it where it's like, there has to be like an existential threat to your fucking very being to motivate you to let go of this uh, mechanism that you use to deal with life or whatever, drinking, drugs, whatever. Uh, I don't know. I relate because I, I would have these experiences where I'd be super fucked up, like wasted, shit-faced, stoned, and then I'd be smoking a cigarette and I and I feel this like crazy feeling in my chest. And at the time I thought like, oh my God, is my heart going to stop? Uh, in retrospect, I, I think it was just some sort of heartburn, but like for years that would just happen with some regularity. And I always thought like I was kind of like knocking on death's door yet, uh, again, for years, that wasn't enough to slow me down or to stop me. If anything, it like sped me up in this kind of perverse fucking way. And the, th- the thing you're saying too, about not being able to swallow, like that's just such a I don't I mean talking about poetry and sobriety that's such a poetic and potent like affliction like it's literally uh blocking <laughs> the breath of life you know and the stuff of life from going into you uh I, I don't know I don't know I'm just kind of riffing right now but um what you're saying really really resonates with me man um when you when you finally got to that point of like, I'm going to the fucking meeting, I'm quitting this shit. Uh, what was the, for me, like the, the early pro the early part of it was the hardest. Like, how did you kind of navigate that early? I don't know what the fuck I'm doing to, to like, I have some footing in this new life, in this new life that I'm trying to create. Like, what was that journey like for you? Yeah. Great question. Um, it was obviously it was terrifying at first. I mean, to go into these rooms full of strangers and just feel nervous and maybe a little ashamed and physically sort of off because you're not, you know, dosed, um, you know, to go through every day, like, what the hell, who am I? What am I? What have I done? What can I become? Am I going to relapse? Like, right. Just this endless, like, um, wheel right hamster wheel of of notions and and memories and god it just was crazy um i i think it was so crucial for me to i got a sponsor pretty early i think i've been going to a meeting meetings for um like one meeting a week for a couple weeks and i liked it there were these kind of funny old guys there who had a lot of sobriety and i had an old friend a poet denise banker who was sober and 
I would talk to her on the phone a lot and she's like, that's a good place. Those guys have a lot of sobriety, pay attention. And you know, before I got sober for years, she knew I had problems. We were close and, and she always said, listen, you know, sobriety isn't boring. It's not mm. boring. Like don't, don't let fear of boredom stop you from getting sober. And, and I think she's absolutely right. I, I think at times you're bored in sobriety, but dude, you're going to be bored no matter what, like soldiers in war are bored. You know, <laughs> I mean, life friends is boring, man. That's what he said, Berryman. Right. And he's right. Anyway. Um, so the sponsor who saved my ass and I've written about him a lot and I dedicated, well, I don't know if I dedicated my book to him. I probably should have, but his arts on the cover, um, Bill Hoover, I was, we were doing an art and a poetry collaboration and he said, what happened? I heard you were in the hospital and I told him everything. And he's like, well, I'd be honored to be your sponsor. And I was like, well, fuck, how could I say no? You know, you're, you're an amazing guy. And so he, um, he's like, well, we're going to go to four meetings a week together and we're going to meet an hour a week and I'm going to give you these readings and, you know, we're going to talk about them and we're going to work through the steps. And, you know, when you're feeling like a zombie when you're feeling like a POW, you know, you're just a fucking disaster. You're defeated and depleted. And then you got this guy saying, look, there's a, there's a process we can go through. So now I've got structure and I've got uh, accountability and I've got sympathy because he never was like, you fucking degenerate. Like, how could you do that? No, of course not. I mean, he was like, oh yeah, I get it. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, that's what we all do. What we all feel, et cetera. Like you say, you can identify, he could identify, identified with him anyway. So a couple months of that. And then you know, just kind of making buddies with these old guys who were strangers. And I say guys, cause it, you know, typically in AA, it's very sort of male, male populated, but there were some important women in my life too, in the, in the program. And anyway, um, you know, they were just so welcoming. They, they weren't religious. They were, you know, they were funny. Like they always say, we are not a glum lot. And there was just so much laughter. And I, I mean, I'd go in there just shaking like, oh my God, I had a quarter pound of weed in my basement three months ago. <laughs> how am I going to do this? And they would just laugh at me. I would tell these stories. You know how it is. I mean, like newbies come in or and they're like, oh my God, I got a DUI. I'm such a badass. And they're just like, congratulations. You, you know, they don't, they just, they wear the world like a loose garment, you know? And so anyway, I'd say probably within, my first birthday was kind of it. I got, they got me a cake and it said miracles happen, but miracles was dis misspelled. So it was M-I-R-A-C-E-L-S, miracles happen. <laughs> and I was like, miracles really do happen in cake frosting. <laughs> and everything up so anyway um but not to say you know i'm still don't feel crazy like i mean i feel crazy all the time but one of the old guys said every morning he goes look you're drunk you're a drug addict you are crazy you know um he goes every morning i look in the mirror and i say dude you're an alcoholic you're crazy remember that and do shit to lessen it mm -hmm. and so um Anyway, after a few months, after a year, two years, um, it settled down. And, you know, you start to see so much good come into your life. You see physical healing. You see emotional healing. You see relationships that had sort of frayed kind of get strengthened. Um, people who, um, who were part of your self-destruction 
you know, if they're real friends, they stick around and you're still friends. You don't do whippets together anymore, <laughs> but you still talk, right? And you still go to breakfast and shit. And, um, you know, the writing really improved, I think, a lot. More productive and more interesting, um, more honest, et cetera. The teaching got better because I was less sub- subject to rage. Mm. Um, with my twisted expectations of myself and my students. And again, all these things are still there. Like I still sometimes want to lie and I still sometimes get really pissed over small things. But luckily there's this methodology in place that says, just hang on a second. And what's your role in this? And, you know, it's better to sort of try to be peaceful than to be a fucking madman, you know? Be a madman in good ways, not bad ways. I don't know. I'm random. No, no, that's fucking... That's that's awesome. That, that's beautiful. And again, that that all makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, this the stuff you were saying early on about like the what was the poet's name who who you're chummy with who who sort of like talked to you on the phone. Who was that person's name? Um. Oh, Denise Banker. Yeah, yeah. Her whole thing like this isn't boring. Like, don't worry about that. Um. I don't know that that resonates with me. I think uh, I think a lot of people kind of fear that life, uh, if you stop getting fucked up or stop partying or whatever, will be degraded in some fundamental way. I had a poem that I wrote shortly after I quit getting fucked up, where where the line is like, "I'm not done partying. I'm just done being cool to party with." Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's a it's a great line, but but at the same time, it's total bullshit. Like I'm a lot more cool to party with than I was when I was getting fucked up back in the day. And I found that life has just become a lot more dynamic and compelling and fun. And I don't know, can you speak to that? That's sort of like, I mean, not that boredom doesn't exist. Of course it does. Like, and the the struggle is always there, but you, you sort of alluded to it, how like life becomes more rich and full uh, after, after you found your footing with it. Can you, can you talk more about that? How like, how boredom is kind of this, fake fear uh that's almost like standing in the way of an actually more exciting life yeah i love that that's a great way to put that um yeah and and you know that's exactly it right it's like well i, I can't i can't go to an event or go to a buddy's without you know we've we've got to have the medicine man we've got to have the social solvent we've got to like right? We've got to be mischievous. We've got to rail against the dying of the light. You know, it's just this kind of, I I mean, I don't want to diss anybody who does that because I did it till I was fucking 44, man. I mean, like I mastered the craft, you know, and I, and I think it can be part of a balanced diet, (laughs) but, uh, but um, yeah, you know, it it was, it was a pretty childish sort of way of looking at the world. Um, It was, um, what did I want to say, dude? I had a I had a better thing to say. It might take me a minute. Can you edit this bit to make it more interesting? Oh yeah, I'm gonna edit the fuck out of it. Just uh, take your time. Get to that. Get to well, that diamond um, of a thought. <laughs> Shit, bro. This is the problem because I did spend a lot of years in that world. Uh, I'm a little bit deranged and uh, summoning things from the mists of time well, and cognition. Let me, let me bounce something out. like. You know, I also want to just put out there that, like, I'm not dissing anyone or anything. And, indeed, like, the times in my life when I was getting fucked up, you know, I have some pretty complex feelings about them. But, 
one, I don't necessarily feel regret about it, or at least not all of it. Uh, that shit was real, and it is a social lubricant in a very real way that unlocks. Um, I listened to some podcast one time, and it was like a way of kind of dancing with life. That uh, when you're an adolescent, you really have no way to do that because everything is so tight and strict and controlled. And and getting fucked up, it kind of like brings this like fun, this way of fucking with life of playing with life that to me just wasn't available and now it's available to me without using drugs but for a long time it wasn't and i don't know i think that is real and i think there's a value there even though the idea that you can only get that value from getting fucked up is like i agree childish um does this sort of bring you back to your thought palace at all yeah. <laughs> yeah, baby. I'm, I'm opening the portcullis to the thought palace. Thanks to you and your brawn. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think it's coincidence that many of us do begin to use drugs and alcohol in adolescence. I mean, I was, I think 12, the first time I got drunk, I was, you know, 13, the first time I took speed, I was 14. The first time I smoked weed, I became an atheist at 13, all of the, and a vandal. I mean, well, I was maybe a vandal before then, but my vandalism took off. And I think it, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, I, I was a happy fucking kid, dude, like a child. I was giddy. I was imaginative. Um, I was goofy. I was playful. Like I found endless delight. And then, you know, I entered junior high and, and uh, all that I knew sort of got transformed, erased, you know, denied. And uh, my best friend quit hanging out with me and my dad like kind of slapped around my mom in front of me and it just kind of was like there this is a shit show man there is no god there is no order i want to destroy shit and i'll start with myself and right i mean dude i would drink vodka and grape juice or take a bunch of speed and be like oh man i feel great like this is pleasure man this is i feel strong again i feel giddy i feel goofy i'll do shit uh, only a child would do without all that extreme self-consciousness of of adolescence and I think that um, that's part of the problem of adult addiction. You are so self-conscious and it's like, I'm only comfortable if I got my buzz on, you know, I got to get my buzz on. And remember, I, you know, if you're at all like me, I would be at a million little gatherings and, and I'd be like, all right, my buzz is fade, man. Let's sneak out. Let's step out around the corner. Or has anybody got anything? Is anybody holding? If anybody isn't, then we better go on a journey and get some shit. And mm -hmm. at times that is, it's kind of fun. It's like, we're the merry pranksters. Like we got to, you know, let's go on a journey. But more often than not, it was just, my skin is feeling tight and I need to loosen that collar and I will use any fucking means available, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so anyway, um, now my skin still gets tight, but it's, it's not you know, as tight, it doesn't asphyxiate me. And, uh, I know, like I can say to myself, this will pass or bro, maybe you need to clean the garage or why don't you meditate or why don't you call Paul Clark, you know, <laughs> do something about it. Right. Read, right. Instead of my default of, of 15 years, which was let's fucking load up a giant bong hit and then everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, another thing, and this is one thing I wanted to mention earlier that escaped me and circled back. And this is maybe only partly, no, I think it is profoundly related when I was sober, maybe six months or so. Um, 
I noticed that the colors of, of the world were a lot brighter, mm. you know, did you know, I don't know, maybe you had a different thing going, but I noticed that greens were greener and blues were bluer and purples were purpler. I'm not kidding, dude. Like the world was more vivid and that wasn't some bullshit illusion. I've heard other people say that too, that your senses kind of power back up. No, I mean, I, on that tip, like, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if I ever felt that exact specific way, but I do remember, um, real early on into it, uh, cause I quit smoking cigarettes at the same time I quit drinking and, uh, my sort of daily two times journey to the nearby gas shop uh, where petroleum is sold and people <laughs> get their boogie on the gas station. I go to every fucking day, sometimes two or three times a day to get cigarettes after like a week and a half. I was like, shit, man, I haven't been there. Like I haven't walked that path. I've been walking this path for fucking five years. And all of a sudden I'm not walking that path anymore. And then another thing I noticed is just like, wow, I don't have any like cuts on my hands or little burns or like I didn't fall over and skin my knee. And just this sort of like um, experience, like my experience of physical reality, like just very rapidly, profoundly shifted. I was just like, I'm exploring different parts of the world. I'm not walking down this same road that I've walked down literally like every single day. And like my body is starting to feel different and better. And I don't know, that was a very like, sensual experience a very phenomenological experience of sobriety that was like super intense and profound and it was like and that was and again it was like a week or two into it and i was like jesus christ like this thing is changing how i fucking do reality like in a very fucking intense and profound Mm. way and i just didn't expect that at all it was complete shock to me and the thing you're saying about the colors well i didn't experienced that exact feeling i never felt like oh man these leaves are even greener now than they were before when you said that it still like rang a bell in my brain i was like yeah i never did feel that way but i felt my own kind of version of that i mean i i loved how you talk about that and you know there is the sort of crux man of of the difference in how addicts or people are actively using perceived sobriety versus what it is they perceive it as denial as willpower, as I can't have what I want. Life is going to be smaller now. You know, I'm not going to be in Benson howling at four in the morning or whatever, right? I'm not going to be doing cocaine off my key in a little bathroom, like being a rock and roll star and shit. They think it's narrower, but as you just said, it's actually way broader, right? Like I used to spend so much time in my basement, dude. I would go down there at 7.30 in the morning. I'd be back at 9. I'd be back at 10.30. I'd be back at noon. (laughs) You know, I mean, I was down there a lot. Um, And yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, you're just so much more. You're both more present in your life in the same places, but then you're going to new places. That's absolutely right, dude. I do so much more shit now. See more people. I, I think I'm braver. I'm bolder. I'm weirder. She said it. It's not boring. And I, and so anyway, as the, you know, colors being brighter, it also means emotions are more emotional, right? It means ideas are more mm-hmm. rich ideas and so on right and all you know it's not easy nobody's claiming it's easy i mean it's a tough transition and once again like when you're in the trough of depression of boredom of of resentment you don't have the escape hatch of a hit you know right or a drink you got to be in it i mean that's the struggle i suppose if there is one it's 
fuck, I am blue and uh, I'm just blue. Like I'm not blue because I'm coming off my weekend bender and I'm not going to get out of it by getting baked. Like I'm just going to feel like shit for a couple days, maybe, you know? Um, but luckily there are processes that can ameliorate that. And luckily, even more luckily, it'll pass. So, and you're more aware of how things will pass. So, holy mm-hmm. smokes. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like for me, it was like, uh, I had this very fucking stupid idea of what would happen if I quit drinking. And it was like this, this weird heart feeling that I get while I'm fucked up is going to cease. And then all my problems are just kind of going to float away. It was my feeling. Like my feeling was that, um, getting fucking wasted was the fountainhead of like the fucking struggles of my life. But in fact, it's just a symptom of the struggles of my life. You know what yeah. I mean? Like this is just the way that I figured to deal with it. So when when I quit, I was like, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was basically throwing my entire way of dealing with life in the fucking garbage can. So then when the fucking difficulties came up, I, I had no fucking way to deal with yeah. it. So it was just like extremely overwhelming, but then you start to figure out ways of dealing with shit that are, I think generally healthier <laughs> than getting s- so fucked up that you can't think anymore. <laughs> and, um, but that, but that's really hard, like, especially early on. And you know what you're saying about having that sort of guy, that shepherd, uh, Hoover to kind of bring you through it. That sounds like very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, man. You know, and, and, um, it, the first time I went to a meeting, one of the things that was most striking about it, it was like, there's people in this city. (laughs) It's like, I thought it was just me in my, my post-apocalyptic basement, you know, like it had, it had gotten so sort of insular and self regarding that. I was honestly most sort of struck by the, the fact that there were 25 people I didn't know in a room. Like, where are these people? Who are they? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that is the kind of embodiment of what you're talking about. It serves as a nice little metaphor for what you're talking about. You know, we, you know, we, you're right. Absolutely. We were, I was dosing as a relation to, as a cure for, as an answer to, as a response to, at the very least, a lot of problems that were deep set and old and so on. And the shit made them temporarily go away, but they never got addressed. They never got, um, they were never allowed to kind of burn out on their own or, or I never had to find a solution. You know, the solution was let's have another three feet of smoke, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so, and I wouldn't say now, you know, I found a way to cure my problems. Like I, dude, I've still will open my refrigerator door 45 times in an afternoon. Like maybe it's in there now, (laughs) maybe it's in there now. What if I open it this time, then I won't be feel weird. You know, still quite fucked up, but I lie about one percent as often. I mean, not maybe less. You know, and um, mm-hmm. and I'm it, the key is just to have a check on your baser instincts. Like, so when somebody upsets me, instead of just spending the rest of my life going, "I fucking hate you," how could you, you demon? I mean, I still will think that, <laughs> but I'm able to say, you know, okay, what's your role here? And you know, you need to work with that person or, you know, dude, how do you want to live? Like, do you want to go through life, like strapping your knife 
on the wedding stone man or or do you want to try to have a good experience so yeah very interesting very well put um i want to change gears here i i find your thoughts about sobriety to be brilliant delightful uh fucking excellent dude but uh you know we've been we've been going on for a while and i feel like we could go on for a lot longer so i'm gonna I'm going to make an executive decision to change the direction of the boat. Um, Todd, we've discussed uh, doing one, one thing I want to say just as a side point, because I remember this, the, the Klingon poem, great poem. Love the poem. It's fucking <laughs> badass. Like every time I was just like, fuck yeah. But it was the sort of like having had you having had seen you read it a few times. I was like, what, what is this poem? doing in this person's life it, it felt like kind of like a, like it was uh pre- not that it was preventing you but like that you had so much more energy to give yet it was just all kind of being channeled into this particular poem which again was a banger but it, it was just like huh this guy's written a fucking crazy poem in klingon people love it but i just keep hearing it like what else does he have to tell me i feel like there's more there and, and that was sort of where i was coming from not to not to say that the poem was goofy or or silly or anything like that. Although it was those things, it was also great. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I did want to say that, uh, killer poem, great fucking poem. Um, but we have discussed Todd back on the poetry train, a top three. Wh- how'd you phrase it? Top three poets that you haven't heard of. Is that, what was the, what was the phraseology? Yeah. Yeah. It was the top, top three poets you've never heard so of. Let's, let's get started. What's your, Let's hear this third writer. Who is this person? Tell me about him. The third writer is Mag Gabbert. You ever heard of her? I have not heard of her. You might say I've never heard of her. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Good. Tell me about her. Well, I, there's this poem she wrote. Uh, this is the first poem I ever wrote, read by her called Oxycodone. And of course, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Let's get out the mortar and pestle. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I read this in Sugar House Review, and I'm just going to read it. Like first, can I read? Look at the first couple lines. So yeah, you can hear please, them? please share whatever you yeah. feel. Okay, feel like well, it's a short poem. I mean, I could almost read the whole thing. Um, Go ahead, do it. Why not? All right, dude. Oxycodone, Mag Gabbert, mother of pearl, porcelain rim toilet seat at the back of the Seven Eleven. Your spine dissolves to pixie dust. Your brain bursts and shines like yolk swishing at the base. You want to drink from the bowl. Your teeth roll, jaw-guttered marbles, white and thinness of your skin, the light blue of your veins, fluorescent beams, the chill of piss-riddled tile. Then the layers break to flakes. Damn. Yeah. Very cool. So, just talk to me about. Just talk to me about the poem. Tell me. Tell me what I. Tell me what you want me to know. Oh well. Um. You know, I am always, even now, a couple years into sobriety, I'm always down to read about drug and alcohol abuse and to write about it. I mean, I, I, I try not to romanticize it. Um, but I'm intrigued by it. You know, I dedicated much of my adult life to it and I still find it interesting. I'm interested in sobriety, but I'm also interested in abuse and so on. And so I love it that that poem opens with a metaphor, um, that 
that pretty much does romanticize it, right? I mean, mother of pearl, like it's beautiful, mm-hmm. right? And then she contrasts it immediately, makes the associative leap to the the place where it's being consumed, you know, porcelain rim toilet seat. We've got that circular color. So there's this interesting overlay of images of associations, but this isn't so pretty, right? We're uh dude, we're, there's a toilet at the seven 11 and somebody, their spine is dissolving, you know, and their brain is bursting and they want to drink from the bowl. And there it is to me. There's the heaven and the hell of it, right? The way you are on the transcendental rocket to stellar space because you're so wasted, but your body isn't there. Your body is in the shitty little bathroom at a gas station or whatever. Um, and I think that's it. I mean, I, to me, that's the whole dialectic between the way that we feel when we're under the influence versus the way that we are under the influence. Those are not the same thing. So I really appreciate that. And her other poems aren't so much about that, but I think they're all really honest. Um, and I think they're all a little, they're a little granular and gritty, you know, they're kind of rooted in, in, um, in sort of perceived experience, but then they make these metaphorical surges that I, I think really, uh, that's where the poetry comes in pretty strong. So anyway, I like what she does. That's fucking badass, dude. Um, any sort of like arrows you want to point, like, here's how you figure that more about this person out. Um, if the, yeah, so she's got a website. Um, do I have it up? It might just be maggabbert.com. She teaches at Southern Methodist U. Um, she's an essayist and a poet. And, you know, I mean, she's been published in some fancy places lately. Um, she's not obscure. But, you know, again, you haven't heard of her. I mean, she's not from around here. So, uh, yeah. And sometimes, you know, her stuff, it's... it's um, you know, it's so accessible and it's, it's almost, um, it's almost like journal entries, you know, like she's got this other poem oyster that starts in high school. A boy broke up with me because I wasn't giving him enough blowjobs. Right. Like it's that, it's that kind of intimate and maybe a little uncomfortable and a little, you know, like non-poetic. Right. I mean, there's no metaphorical language. There's no imagery. It's just this bald confession. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that too. I don't, I don't think they should always be charged language. I mean, the charge there is in the honesty. It's in the confession. It's in the act, you know, it's in the discomfort, perhaps the regret. I don't know the power dynamic, you know? Absolutely. No, that makes, that makes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that theory of poetry, <laughs> uh, that poetry doesn't have to be poetry to be poetry. If that makes sense hell yeah it does um all right well uh i feel like you've just enlightened the people to something excellent and now i will try to match you are you ready i am man i'm bracing for the uh elucidations have you ever heard of lauren ireland no what's that last name ireland oh lauren ireland the country (laughs) no all right, so here's the story. Um, there's a so like when I was younger, I go to Barnes and Noble and I look around the literary magazine section, and it was just a a real kind of bad vibe. Like there's just not a lot going on. 
most of the shit just did not interest me, particularly in the poetry department. Like you just flip open the mag and it's just like pretty boring poems on a lot of these magazines. And there weren't that many of them. But then one day there's a magazine there called Lungful exclamation point. And I flip through and this name is on it in the, in the, in the pages. There's the name Anthony Hawley and Anthony was a professor of mine. And he was like this hip young hotshot uh, teacher who taught this badass avant-garde poetry class that sort of rocked my world a little bit. So I was like, what the fuck? Anthony Hawley. This is, this is weird. Like he's weird. Like he's, he's out there. He's not part of the fucking game that is typically played in these poetry mags. So I bought the magazine Lungful and two, two little things about it. One, that issue, or maybe it's a different issue, but there's an issue of Lungful, which features an essay by the editor of that magazine. His name is Brendan Lorber called success is failure. And it's all about how, um, trying to succeed is like the root of stultification and dullness. Whereas accepting life's sort of ongoing difficulty is the key to like a richer and deeper um, success or whatever. And for years, every time I felt like shit about being a poet or being an artist, I would flip open that, that magazine and read that essay. And it really, I don't know. I love that essay and it really meant a lot to me for a, a long period of time. But the shtick of Lungful is they would have a rough draft next to a finished poem that was the that's the conceit of the magazine and there was a poem in there by lauren ireland who uh i think is badass and i i don't have the poem in front of me i'm so sorry but the poem the last uh words of the poem are give me my fucking money 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 <laughs> and when I read that poem, I was just like, holy fucking moly. It was a very short poem. Like it was, it's like a, it's like a eight line poem at the longest. And it just like, so almost half of the poem is just her saying, give me my fucking money over and over. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, this person is fucking onto something. And I sent it to my friend, Rachel Wolf. And we sort of became this like unofficial two person Lauren Ireland fan club. And whenever <laughs> I'd find a poem of hers on the internet, I would send it, Rach's way and since then like um I never hear anyone talking about her and it just kind of blows my mind because to me she's just such a such a master of like the 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 real lyric you know what I mean I feel like it's akin to what you're talking about with the with the line about like the dude breaking up with her because she wouldn't give him a blowjob or whatever not that these poems are necessarily engaging in that type type of uh talk although I'm, I'm sure i'm certain there is like sexual stuff discussed in her poems but like it, it is that sort of like just a directness a realness and um figuring out a way to put that out in, in, in such a way that it's like has a poetic fucking burst a poetic spark to it so i don't know L- lauren ireland is really fucking badass in my opinion uh so yeah that's my number three do you have any questions or queries about this figure i mean man you you gave me a lot of good good nutrients there brother i i want to briefly touch on that essay and how important that is that notion that you know 
chasing success is 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 deadening um and that failure is something to celebrate chasing success is 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 deadening um and that failure is something to celebrate chasing success is 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 deadening um and that failure is something to celebrate um i love it that you as a as a young phc man there you were at barnes and noble sifting through the dross and you found this idiosyncratic badass who somehow was connected to your teacher and that they were willing to say look at our poems in the rough form and the prettier form and they were willing to just chant this great phrase of yearning and rage and uh right give me my fucking money and you see that you know all poetry really is is language arranged that's it i mean i i mean you know of course language is the essence of thought and speech and connection so it's a lot more than just language but but that's all you need to do, dude. Take a phrase like that that is you've heard a million times, you've said it a million times, and just fucking repeat it until it becomes a drum beat. Looking at the book Feelings by Lauren Ireland, it's out by uh, Trembling Pillow Press. It is the art of it is like it's just a mixtape. I've met the publisher of this book. She had a very good energy, like a real kind of like I, I don't know how to put it, but like a good energy, a good vibe, a kind of subversive. Uh, don't fuck with me because I'm the real shit kind of vibe. And it's a type of energy that I that I see poets or poetry adjacent people possess. But oftentimes it's like older dudes who like kind of suck and they're just trying to like talk down to you. And, and they're using this like rebel kind of energy to justify dickish behaviors. And, and I'm not trying to say necessarily the, the, the publisher of Trembling Hollow trembling pillow press excuse me you know is putting on some kind of rebellious affect just that they seem kind of like a person who like a punk rock kind of person but in a genuine way that's actually warming and generative because a lot of times punk rock is it's just fake ass people doing fake ass shit so they can like i mean in a lot of cases let's be real so they can like be predatory like that's that's a lot of like what punk rock is unfortunately or any sort of like subversive youth culture thing but in its best form and and the best kind of stuff that i think of as punk it's actually like incredibly creative like it's creating something vital from nothing and the publisher of this book had that kind of vital energy and the poet, Lauren Ireland, has that energy as well, although I've never met Lauren Ireland. Nonetheless, I love Lauren Ireland. I love her poetry. I think she's brilliant. I, I can really go on and on about Lauren Ireland, but I'm going to try and keep it, keep it somewhat succinct. 
first of all, I encountered Lauren Ireland in the book in the in the in the poetry journal Lungful, which is a journal from New York that was published by this dude named Brendan Lorber, and somehow he got it he got it distributed in, in Barnes and Noble for a little while, and I picked up a copy. And in that issue, there's an essay by Lorber called Success is Failure. And it's just about how, like, trying to succeed makes you a fucking loser who who gives up. And failing is, like, when you never give up and you keep trying to, like, do shit that matters to you. And it's just about how, like, trying to succeed makes you a fucking loser who, who gives up. And failing is, like... When you never give up and you keep trying to, like, do shit that matters to you. And it's a beautiful essay. And when I was younger especially, I came back to it again and again. I just kept reading it over and over and over. Every time I felt fucked up, I would read that essay. And one time I messaged Brennan Lorber about it on Facebook. And I was like, hey, you wrote this essay. It really meant a lot to me. And he never responded. I know he never responded because, like, two years later, I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to message Brendan Lorber on Facebook about that essay. And then I like went to send the message. I had already sent him a message. <laughs> and honestly, Brendan Lorber, if you saw that message and you chose not to respond to it, go, go fuck go yourself. yourself. Like seriously, fuck off. Like that's not cool. It's not cool when a young person sends you a message that's like, hey, you did something that was really meaningful to me to be like, oh, that's weird, I'm not going to respond, or any reason to not respond is not cool. It's fucked up, and it's shitty. If it just got filtered into your thing, and then it was like six weeks later that you saw it, even then you still should have responded. Honestly, there's no reason not to respond except for not seeing the message. And this is a, this is a general fuck you to anyone who has ever done anything like that. If someone who has gone out of their way to say, hey, I don't know you, but you've done something that's mattered to me. The least you can do is say, hey, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. I sent a message to uh, another poet one time. Uh, I'm actually, uh, I sent a message to a poet one time who's a lot more famous than Brendan Lorber, uh, giving the poet some kudos for um, speaking on an issue that is important to me. And the way that this poet responded was like, Thanks for following along. And I was just like, what the fuck kind of response is that? Like, I'm telling you, like, you're talking about something important and that's cool. And you said, thanks for following along. It's very weird. So, you know, poets, poets be fucking up in terms of, like, engaging with people who find aspects of what they do meaningful. In the second case, this poet is someone that I'm not as fully interested in or bought in on. But I just wanted to say, hey, this thing that you talk about is important to me. And I think it's cool that you talk about it. And then they say, like, thanks for following along. And it's just kind of, like, goofy. But the Brennan Lorber thing is very disheartening. And I mean it. Like, fuck you, dude. Like, fuck you. Fuck anyone who, you know, doesn't come correct toward kind energy. Like, if someone's irradiating kind energy, you got to fucking come back with some. Otherwise, you're fucking up. So that's my first anecdote. It's about Brendan Lorber. But he published a poem by Lauren Ireland in his journal, Lungful. And I, I was obsessed with the poem. And the poem, me and my friend Rachel Wolf, we had this like fun relationship that kind of like 
the poem was a part of our friendship. But the poem ends with the lines, with the line, give me my fucking money being repeated. So it's like, give me my fucking money. 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 And when I read that poem, I was just like, whoa, that is a poem for poemy poem poems. That poem poems the fuck out of poetry. That poem out poetry's poetry. That's a poem, poem, poem. I loved that poem. I still love that poem. But that was how I became in, interested in Lauren Ireland. And I sort of followed her online obsessively and would try and like dig up every poem I could find of hers on the internet and save it in documents and shit. And then eventually she started putting books out. She had a book out called The Arrow, which is a cool book. And she had a book called Dear Lil Wayne, which is a sort of like conceptual text of like poetic letters to the rapper Lil Wayne. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about that, honestly. Uh, the poems are cool. I like the poems. I think it's a little off when people, when white artists kind of like co-brand themselves with black artists especially in a way that could be perceived as like jokey and i think the dear little wayne book had a bit of that going on at the same time uh Lil wayne is a brilliant artist and uh an unparalleled uh user of the english language toward artistic ends and any poet that is interested in Lil Wayne that I've ever known is a good poet. So, you know, I, I do think that he is a legitimate poetic force of fucking nature and another poet sort of doing a, an homage to him or a, hey, this is how great you are type of book. I do think that's a valid exercise. I just have a little mixed feelings about it. Anyways, the book Dear Lil Wayne, this is one of my favorite pieces of content ever and it's on my youtube page i posted it on youtube it is a video of a red carpet event and this dude who like maybe is like a famous person in the world of like celebrity journalism or like a semi-known figure but this guy he's just like the guy on the carpet being like what are you wearing oh my god blah 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 we're here he for whatever reason decided to have celebs read the book dear Lil wayne by lauren ireland and there's this video of i can't remember who all it is but it's like asap rocky reads one of the poems and i'm going to ask people to read poems to Lil wayne and see how it goes i hate irony i love you i guess that's all i have to say today lately whiskey makes me feel better all over my parts that's tight. I read in a magazine that you and Paris Hilton have some things in common. I think that's okay. As long as you're in earnest. Remember, Paris Hilton. Oh, man. <laughs> Was that the weirdest thing anyone's made you do on the red carpet? Yeah. But it's cool, though. But then the actor Topher Grace and this woman who I believe is his wife and is also an actress, but hasn't had as much success in her career as Topher Grace has, they are encountered by this red carpet guy and Topher Grace reads a poem from the book and uh, it's just the most repulsive thing you'll ever see. It's just like, would I rather be dead? 
It's like a poetry. What is this? It was, it was supposed There's to be the There's so much mystery. Guys, guys. Oh, you're supposed to pick the one with the pink. You should finish this one now. I'm right in the middle of it. Yeah. I want to. I want to see how it ends. It's a real, it's a real ends. piece of art too. There's so much mystical bullshit. So true. I hope we meet each other in one of many hells. <laughs> wow. I'll be there waiting for you, and we'll be okay together. Man, these celebrities, dude, like they're fucking goons. Like they're dorks. They're fucking losers. They're they're wackos. They're suckos. They they fucking suck ass. <laughs> and it's just like, I was, I almost tweeted this yesterday. Like it's funny how celebrities are like way less cool than regular people. Like the people who are like our sort of icons of what is cool are in fact the least cool. And the people who are like, these people suck are the most cool. That's how like upside down our society is. But like, this is a great video. If you're like, want to get a sense of how, you know, just kind of brain dead and anti-creativity the world of the creative industries is. I really love the video. I feel like I had another thing I was going to say about Lauren Ireland. But I don't. I don't have another thing I'm going to say about Lauren Ireland. That's all I have to say about Lauren Ireland. Here's a poem. It's called, every poem in this book is a, a day and a place. But it's there's it's not it's not in chronological order. So you've got May eighteenth, twenty fourteen, May twenty eighth, twenty twelve. Oh wait, no, it is in chronological order by day of the year. So it's like you're going through July, you're going through August, but it's like August twenty fourteen, August two thousand four, August two thousand ten, August two thousand twelve. So 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 um I like that. I was listening to the New York Times podcast, and they're talking about the Fiona Apple record, Release the Bolt Cutters, and it's a good episode, by the way. I, I recommend checking out that episode of the New York Times podcast. Uh, the host, John Caramonica, he references a profile of Fiona in one of the major magazines where she talks, I believe, about um, a writing process where she would like write over old stuff. So she'd like, have an old, old notebook, and then she would write new stuff around old stuff that she'd written and then like that sort of that sort of like would become the basis for like a piece and that's something i've done i've taken i, I have a lot of poems i've written where like i had all these old ass notebooks with all this random ass shit written in them and i just wrote new writing all around them and then i would then i would create like a poem that that had this like non-temporal quality to me it had a very psychedelic effect where you're just like when you're putting like a line from 20, 2006 next to a line from 2014 and you're asserting that it's like part of a singular expression, at least to me, it creates this, this like energy that like all things kind of are existing at once within us type of vibe. You know what I mean? So yeah, I felt very... I felt like, oh man, Fiona Apple does a thing that that's similar to a thing that I do. That's fucking cool. It made me feel like proud of myself or something like that. But this book does a very similar thing where it's like, yeah, here's a poem from 2014. Here's a poem from 2012. Here's a poem from 2003. Here's a poem from 1997. Here's a poem from 2015. Here's a poem from 2004. 
it's an interesting effect because life, the idea that life is this like chronological experience that like develops and progresses and whatnot, it's all total fucking bullshit. That's all fucking horse shit. Uh, you know, the Faulkner line, like the past isn't over. It isn't even past. That's the, that's the fucking truth. That shit you can put on a tombstone and no one's going to disagree. So this book, it's engaging in a project related to time that I find to be very exciting. And, and I think that uh, a lot of poetry books, they, they chose, they choose a thematic. It's like, Oh, this book will be about, um, echo poetics of like the post Katrina United States policy through when that oil thing broke in the Gulf or some shit, you, you know, it's just like, oh, let's write a poem that sort of like delves into this theme. And that can be cool. I'm not trying to dismiss that altogether, but I will say that the project of just kind of, I'm going to have a book that attempts to like condense time and experience into a way that is more in line with our actual mental processing of reality without any sort of like attempt at like a thematic whatever. I think that's cool. Here's a poem by Lauren Ireland. The book also is called Feelings, which I believe I've mentioned, but I just love that title. To me, it's just like a, again, there's a lot of books that get a lot of heat that are just like, this is an important book about this subject. Lauren Ireland calling her book Feelings. To me, it's just like a fuck you to like poetry or whatever. Cause it's just like, nah, like I'm not trying to like say anything important about anything. I'm just trying to talk about my feelings, which is like what poetry is. That's what it is. That's poetry. That is poetry. That's such a big part of poetry. Yet I feel like poetry presses poetry world. They want to obscure that basic fact. And I, and I like that her, her book pushes back against that. All right, May 28th, 2012, San Francisco. I think that I am feeling feelings. There is a truck that carries my feelings. It carries my feelings deep into the night, past all the feelings I used to feel, past reason, past the burned out hills and all the old places. I am the sound of a car hushing down the black, wet street. I used to be all the sounds. The clean smell of salt cleansed me and the names of the trees. When I lay down drunk, I pray facing east. When I wake, it is quiet. I throw up. I start again. Yeah, that's a really cool poem. And it's hard to take a poem like that and kind of pick out one little thing about it that can be broadly applicable to whoever the fuck. But I guess this has been on my mind. Someone, this dude, I can't remember his name, but he's a dude on Twitter who's like, He's cool, but there's all these people on Twitter who are like poetry people who are like, hey guys, like what's your favorite uh, book about this, huh? 
And then it's just like all these like syllabus writing motherfuckers being like, I find this book to be a very compelling exploration of this. And also, obviously, this book is a classic in the field. And it's just like this kind of circle jerk kind of energy. Like everyone like, oh, yeah, yeah. So he's he's one of those sort of commentators where he's always kind of like, hey, let's have a circle jerk, guys. But he's nice. He's smart. He's got some pretty sharp perspectives on things from time to time. But anyways, he had – I don't even know why I got to talking about this dude. Oh, yeah. He had posted a tweet that was like, what are some interesting things discussing uh, poetry that doesn't employ the I? As in the letter I, I am Paul. And then all these people were just like saying all this like Ron Silliman language poetry conceptualist bullshit. And it was just like corny to me. And uh, and I retweeted him a, a quote tweet and I said like, you know, I read a really interesting essay on this topic. It was like, it was actually a guy came up to me and read me the essay it was after an open mic and he was like this older dude and it was a really like interesting feat of brevity. He said, have you ever written a poem without the word I? And like what really made the essay like a tour de force was the condescending tone with which he, with which he recited it. And, uh, that was my take on questions of like, what about poetry that doesn't include the word I? When I was younger, it was like, you almost felt like you were doing something wrong if you used the word I in your palms. It's such a weird time, but it was like a very real kind of feeling. And it was a lot more of a discussion when I was younger, like using I, like it just seemed a bit more outside the bounds of acceptability back then. And I've had a lot of dudes come up to me after open mics and be like, I got a challenge for you, young gun. Why don't you, write, why don't you try and write a poem without I and see if you can write a cool poem that way? And it's like, there's a rapper named Micah James who, he has this line in one of his songs, like he calls, he refers to uh, uncles whose shit is over. And, and that's like, to me, the, the paradigmatic example of an uncle whose shit is over. Some older dude in open mic coming up to a young person whose poem was like connecting with others and saying like, oh yeah, your poem was cool. Well, why don't you try and write a poem without the word I, then try and write a cool poem. It's very similar to the movie Captain America. <laughs> Excuse me. Very similar to the movie Captain Marvel which is actually oddly, surprisingly, because I'm not a fan of Brie Larson, one of my favorite uh, entries into the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it features this central conflict between Captain Marvel, played by Brie Larson, and Jude Law. Jude Law being like, hey, Captain Marvel, you have like this mega power, but like you can't unleash it. You have to figure out how to be strong without it. Then you'll be truly strong. And the whole movie is just her like repressing her inner strength because this like authority figure is telling her to do that because he's defying the terms of what strong is. And then eventually she's like, you know what? Fuck this guy. And then she, she unleashes her true power. And I just think that's a beautiful metaphor and potent metaphor for creativity. 
And yeah, the people who are like, you shouldn't use the word I in poems, I feel like are often just kind of being the Jude Law character in Captain Marvel. There's been like, yeah, you can write a genius poem with the word I, but like to be a truly great poet, you have to do it without it. And it's just like, it's just total nonsense. Like it's just total freaking nonsense. Like it makes no sense. It's just gibberish. Like it's just a gibberish thing. Um, it's an it's an intellectualized, abstracted, non-thought designed to prevent people from exploring real shit. Because some people want poetry to be pointless, a pointless kind of exercise in nothing. That's that's sort of like my feelings about people who are anti the word I in poems. Now I've written poems without the word I. There are cool poems without the word I. I'm not completely against not using the word I. I think there's all kinds of cool shit you can do without using the word I. I'm interested in not using the word I. But a poetics that is based on, no, you can't use the word I, I'm very skeptical of. I'm very, 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 very skeptical of. And this poem by Lauren Ireland, May 28th, 2012, San Francisco, is a motherfucking I poem. I think that I am feeling feelings. That's the first line. Is there a more like I line than I think that I am feeling feelings. I used to feel past reason, past the burned out hills and all the old places. I am the sound of a car. I used to be all the sounds, the clean smell of salt. When I lay down drunk, I pray facing east. When I wake, it is quiet. I throw up. I start again. So, I think the danger of, if I were to give this idea that poems shouldn't use the word I, some credence. I think you might say the danger of using the word I is you just kind of like enter into a kind of solipsistic self-referential space where you're not really talking about anything other than your own kind of insular experience that isn't really connected to the world that other people live in. And I get that. I've written a lot of self-involved poems, which isn't to say self-involved poems are all without merit, because indeed being self-involved is part of being a person. Therefore, poems that explore that, even if they do it in a way that is self-involved, can be good. Nonetheless, I've written self-involved poems. I do get it. I do get the kind of limitations of writing about your subjective experience. But what this what this poem does is it's using the eye, I think, in kind of a an almost universal way. Like in the beginning and in the end, it it's it's this universal eye. I think that I am feeling feelings. This is something that this is a universal human experience. And then at the end, I pray facing east. When I wake, it is quiet. I throw up. I start again. Like, I pray facing east. I don't know exactly the religio-symbolic reference that's being used there. but it, I, But I know that, like, kind of praying as a ritual where you face a cardinal direction is no small thing. And then, uh, you, you know, for the, so, so, so it's like, 
it's this universal experience of feeling feelings. It's this like um, universal experience of like seeking some kind of spiritual guidance or empowerment. And then it's this like universal experience of like, I start again. I, I love that as a final moment in an eye poem because it's like, it's so not subjective yet it is and i think that um people who are critics of i they're just like yeah if you just use i you're just gonna get lost in subjectivity i guess but like i think there's a lot of potential for the word i to to open up into a very like universal space that resonates with lots and lots of people and this poem i think that i'm feeling feelings as the first line that is resonant 100 percent with all humans and then like when i lay down drunk i pray facing east is it both alludes to like you know the cultural experience of prayer spirituality religiosity which is universal and to the experience of drunkenness which i don't think is universal i don't think everyone kind of has a moment in their life when they're like drunk to the point that they feel as though they've like fucked up so much that they need to pray but for some of us who are addicts it it really hits it really you know it hits hard it hits hard enough for me anyways maybe there's other people who are addicts who would not find it to be powerful but i find it very powerful and then that final thing where it's like i wake up it is quiet i throw up I start again. I don't know. It's just like. To me, it just kind of says everything. Because that's all you can do is start again. Because that's all you can do is start again. Because that's all you can do is start again. Because that's all you can do is start again. We strolled the Spanish marketplace at 90 in the shade. With all the fruit and vegetables so temptingly arrayed And we can share a memory As every lover must And I remember oranges I remember oranges I remember oranges And you remember dust the autumn leaves are tumbling down and winter's almost here. But through the spring and summertime we laughed away the year. And now we can be grateful for the gift of memory. For I remember having fun to happy hearts that beat as one. When I had thought that we And then we got to have, you know, we got to have the sort of a test of Topher Grace and he failed. He Fuck failed. you, dude. You got a problem. You got a small soul, man. Hey, Topher Grace, enlarge your soul, buddy. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs>
way do I go? Which way do I go? Keep 